Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson here with my co-host Celia Farber. In keeping with a key aim of our show, which is to persistently focus on big third rail issues of our time, we have for you today, I'd call him super journalist, James Corbett, founder, webmaster. I would too. <laughs> producer and editor of the Corbett Report an outlet for independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics. And the Corbett Report has been around for well more than a decade. Corbett has produced thousands of hours of audio and video media for his website, which includes a podcast and many online documentaries and series. Anyone familiar with his work, and I've followed his work for years, um, anyone familiar with his work knows that Corbett is a reporter who maintains a laser beam focus on the facts and that he conducts ongoing investigations of third rail issues, particularly 9-11. No one can pinpoint the BS in false narratives like Corbett. He's here today to discuss 9-11 and his must-see documentary as well as it's broken down into a series, too, called 9-11 Whistleblowers. So what our listeners are going to get today, <clears throat> excuse me, is the clearest, most forthright account of what's true and what isn't, who the 9-11 whistleblowers are, who the bad guys are in this story, and what's new in the international effort to get accountability for the past and ongoing crimes associated with this horrific event. Welcome, James. We're thrilled to have you. Welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. And with <laughs> such a glowing introduction, I only hope I can live up to it. But uh, you, we certainly will live up to the title of touching the third rail issue. In fact, it is probably the issue that got me into journalism in the first place and doing what it is that I do. So uh, it's one that I'm very passionate about. Well, you have already earned this glowing praise because you've been at it for so long. And I'm familiar with your work. And that's how I view your work. So I want to start today with a video piece. To me, it's unforgettable. I saw it, I don't know, I don't, how long ago was it that you did it? But it's an excellent example of your sublimely well-honed BS detector. It's a breakdown of the official narrative for 9-11. Hilarious and infuriating at the same time. I think it's something everyone should hear, and I want to kick off our show with you with that, with that piece, if you don't mind. So, Jess, could you play that piece for us? Jess is our wonderful engineer that we love very much. On the morning of September 11, 2001, 19 men armed with box cutters directed by a man on dialysis in a cave fortress halfway around the world using a satellite phone and a laptop directed the most sophisticated penetration of the most heavily defended airspace in the world. Overpowering the passengers and the military combat trained pilots on four commercial aircraft before flying those planes wildly off course for over an hour without being molested by a single fighter interceptor. These 19 hijackers, devout religious fundamentalists who like to drink alcohol, snort cocaine, and live with pink-haired strippers, managed to knock down three buildings with two planes in New York. While in Washington, a pilot who couldn't handle a single-engine Cessna was able to fly a 757 in an 8,000-foot descending 270-degree corkscrew turn to come exactly level with the ground. 
hitting the Pentagon in the budget analyst office where DOD staffers were working on the mystery of the $2.3 trillion that Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld had announced missing from the Pentagon's coffers in a press conference the day before, on September 10, 2001. Luckily, the news anchors knew who did it within minutes. Osama bin Laden. The pundits knew within hours. Osama bin Laden. The administration knew within the day. Terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. And the evidence literally fell into the FBI's lap. That a hijacker's passport was found blocks from the World Trade Center crash site, if you can believe that. But for some reason, a bunch of crazy conspiracy theorists demanded an investigation into the greatest attack on American soil in history. That investigation was delayed, underfunded, set up to fail, a conflict of interest, and a cover-up from start to finish. It was based on testimony extracted through torture, the records of which were destroyed. It failed to mention the existence of WTC-7, Able Danger, P-TECH, Sibel Edmonds, OBL and the CIA, and the drills of hijacked aircraft being flown into buildings that were being simulated at the precise same time that those events were actually happening. It was lied to by the Pentagon, the CIA, the Bush administration, and as for Bush and Cheney, well, no one knows what they told it because they testified in secret, off the record, not under oath, and behind closed doors. It didn't bother to look at who funded the attacks because that question is ultimately of little practical significance. Still, the 9-11 Commission did brilliantly answering all of the questions the public had, except most of the victim's family members' questions, and pinned blame on all the people responsible, although no one so much as lost their job, determining the attacks were failure of imagination because nobody in our government at least, and I don't think the prior government that could envision flying airplanes in the buildings. Except the Pentagon, FEMA, NORAD, and the NRO. The DIA destroyed 2.5 terabytes of data on Able Danger, but that's okay because it probably wasn't important. The SEC destroyed their records on the investigation into the insider trading before the attacks, but that's okay because destroying the records of the largest investigation in SEC history is just part of routine record keeping. NIST has classified the data that they used for their model of WTC7's collapse, but that's okay because knowing how they made their model of the collapse would jeopardize public safety. The FBI has argued that all material related to their investigation of 9-11 should be kept secret from the public, but that's okay because the FBI probably has nothing to hide. This man never existed, nor is anything he had to say worthy of your attention, and if you say otherwise, you are a paranoid conspiracy theorist and deserve to be shunned by all of humanity. Likewise him, 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 and her. And her, and her, and him. Osama bin Laden lived in a cave fortress in the hills of Afghanistan, but somehow got away. Then he was hiding out in Tora Bora, but somehow got away. Then he lived in Abbottabad for years, taunting the most comprehensive intelligence dragnet employing the most sophisticated technology in the history of the world for a decade, releasing video after video with complete impunity and getting younger and younger as he did so, before finally being found in a daring SEAL team raid which wasn't recorded on video, in which he didn't resist or use his wife as a human shield, and in which these crack special forces operatives panicked and killed this unarmed man, supposedly the best source of intelligence about those dastardly terrorists on the entire planet. Then they dumped his body in the ocean before telling anyone about it. Then a couple dozen of that team's members died in a helicopter crash in Afghanistan. This is the story of 9-11, brought to you by the media which told you the hard truths about His head could be seen to move violently forward. And They took the babies out of the incubators. And Mobile production facilities. And The rescue of Jessica Lynch. If you have any questions about this story, you are a batshit, paranoid, tinfoil, dog-abusing baby hater, and will be reviled by everyone. If you love your country and or freedom, happiness, rainbows, rock and roll, puppy dogs, apple pie, and your grandma, you will never ever express doubts about any part of this story to anyone. Ever. <laughs> this has been a public service announcement by the Friends of the Empire. Oh, you see, what a masterpiece. That's why I love James Corbett. This guy is brilliant, and he just it's gets so right to the... Okay, so James, uh, we want to talk about 
the 9-11 whistleblowers. Uh, because as you state at the very beginning of your longer documentary, I know you did uh, separate smaller pieces on these people, uh, people always say, oh, yeah, well, 9-11, if it was a conspiracy, how come there are no uh, whistleblowers? And you show that they are. So why don't you talk about the whistleblowers that you found? Well, I think it's first important to note that uh, there's no uh, definite uh, article there. It's not the 9-11 whistleblowers, it's 9-11 whistleblowers, because I have collected here a handful of what I think are important stories to tell when it comes to 9-11 and whistleblowing, but certainly not the only stories to tell. And over the years, I've told the stories of a number of people, some of whom I mentioned in that, that video you just played, um, like Robert Wright, or uh, uh, people like that, uh, Richard Grove and others who, uh, in Singh, for example. Yeah. A number of people who have stories that I think are important with regards to 9-11, but I did select these particular ones for this uh, particular documentary because I think they do a good job of representing the idea, the central idea, which is a rebuke against that old canard that if there was something fishy about 9-11, there'd be someone to blow the whistle on it. Well, I want to tell people there have been, in fact, numerous people who have blown the whistle, and they have been, as uh, your listeners will no doubt not be surprised to hear, systematically ignored by the very system that, uh, well, they're trying to blow the whistle on. Right, right. So... So give us, you know, give us some of the narratives that you included in this, uh, in, in, in your documentary. Talk about, for example, Kate Jenkins. We, we actually had Kevin. Well, I talk about Kevin Ryan, who I know. Hold on. We, we cannot hear you. I don't know if uh, you're still, um, I don't, I don't know. I think we've right. lost him. I am still here. Can you oh, hear me? He's back. There we go. Oh, yeah, we we actually had Kevin on our um, our show here, and he told us he told us his story. So, but briefly, briefly remind the audience about Kevin Ryan. Kevin Ryan, as again, as you talked to him a few weeks ago, uh, he was an employee at the Environmental Health Laboratories in South Bend, Indiana, which was at the time it was a subsidiary of Underwriters Laboratories. And the head of UL, the uh, the CEO at that time, Loring Knobloch, came to uh, Kevin Ryan's site in Indiana in the weeks following 9-11 and made an offhand comment that Underwriters Laboratory had underwritten the steel in the World Trade Center and said that almost as a point of pride. You know, Underwriters Laboratories is so big and important, we underwrite everything, including the World Trade Center. Uh, Kevin Ryan filed that away. It wasn't until years later, as Underwriters Laboratory was uh, assisting NIST in the official government investigation into the collapse of the towers, that that comment started to resonate. Wait, we underwrote the steel in those buildings, <laughs> but they, they collapsed exceptionally quickly. In fact, much quicker than would have been anticipated uh, if they had actually lived up to their fire resistance ratings. So what's going on here? And again, as your listeners will, will hopefully know by now, uh, Kevin Ryan went down that rabbit hole trying to explore what was going on and ultimately got fired from his job as a result of it because he started asking uh, a few too many questions. Inconvenient to the questions. Person who was, yeah, inconvenient questions indeed to, to NIST itself. So he was summarily fired and then took up the torch and has, in fact, become an extremely dedicated 9-11 researcher and activist in the years since. So his story is fascinating. But as I say, your your listeners should be familiar, hopefully, with that by now. But 
Um, some of the other people that I talk about in the series include Kate Jenkins, which I find to be a particularly interesting story because I myself, obviously, I've been researching uh, about 9-11 for many years. Kate Jenkins is a name that I may have seen on occasion, but I certainly hadn't delved into until I really got uh, into production of this documentary. Yeah, and I wasn't familiar with It's a with fascinating her. story. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Tell it. Well, I, I, I think she's a, a, a particularly interesting whistleblower when it comes to 9-11 because a lot of the 9-11 whistleblowers were first-time whistleblowers. It was their first time encountering information like this and trying to blow the whistle. Well, Kate Jenkins was not a first-time whistleblower when it comes to her agency, specifically the Environmental Protection Agency, where she had worked since 1979 as an environmental scientist. She was with the Office of Solid Waste and Emergency Response, and she specifically, she specialized in dioxin, better known as Agent Orange, which of course was primarily manufactured by uh, Monsanto Chemical Corporation, uh, at least during the Vietnam War. And that led in the 1980s to a lawsuit of employees of the Monsanto uh, Corporation and uh, various servicemen who were saying that their um, their cancers and, and uh, other health problems were d directly linked to the dioxins that they had handled that Monsanto had produced and that they knew were toxic. Uh, uh, Monsanto, etc. Uh, this directly, of course, impinged on Dr. Jenkins and her knowledge, and she ultimately wrote a memo that became an important part of this whole drama, basically blowing the whistle on the EPA relying on faulty Monsanto-sponsored studies to try to dismiss the link between the Agent Orange and the cancer and other such uh, problems. And that embroiled so... her in this years-long legal battle. They tried to oust her from her position. She eventually she appealed and eventually got her job and position back. And it was a, a long, years-long nightmare for her specifically. And I imagine at that time, once she got her position back, uh, she imagined, I imagine she probably thought that would be the end of that. <laughs> the it last buzzsaw she'd in run into. <laughs> right. You're right, yeah. Unfortunately, not, no. Because in the wake of 9-11, the uh, EPA, of course, became heavily involved in the aspect of the cleanup. What kind of cleanup will be needed to, to get rid of this waste from Manhattan, and how has it affected the air quality, which we now know, of course, is a, uh, a very large story that has been more or less swept under the rug, except for the thousands upon thousands of dead or dying first responders right. who are still suffering from the So this is a part of, of the crime that keeps on giving in terms of uh, death, right? And the EPA is connected. So, yes. yeah. yeah, EPA was connected to looking into what to use to to clean it up, right? Exactly right. And and the uh, I think EPA at that time EPA had Christine Todd Whitman is infamous for her statements directly in the wake of 9/11 that the air is safe to breathe and yes you should the first responders should probably wear a mask on ground zero itself on the as they're doing the cleanup, but for residents of Lower Manhattan, it's fine and it's safe to breathe. And Jeez. that was the gist of EPA's response at that time. Uh-oh. I think he's gone out again. Um, anyway. Okay. Yeah, we lost you for a second there. Yeah. So, so the <laughs> EPA basically, okay. the, the EPA basically falsified data, right? Um, they diluted, like in their lab, they diluted the World Trade Center dust with water before testing it. They did something. They did something like that. 
talk about what it is that's the EPA right. did. There were in there were a number of things that she pointed out. In fact, she uh, in 2007 she penned a 134 page letter that really you must at least see if not read all of it. But it's it's documented, footnoted, and goes through step by step all of the different groups that played a role in the determination all of this nonsense that we now know uh, is killing people to this very day. And wow. uh, she talked about various things like diluting um, dust samples 60 plus times before uh, measuring their effects and, and uh, other things like that. She also pointed out uh, something that I thought was quite interesting with regards to Libby, Montana, which was a, uh, a designated Superfund site. So the EPA designated it as a special site uh, for special cleanup because it had been... Uh, adjacent to a, uh, a, a essentially a, a, a gillet mining operation, which for the entire area and oh gosh, our this connection is terrible. Wait, you're going in and out. You're going to have to accruing and happen. So it was a super fun site for cleaning up that had asbestos, right? Is that what you were saying when you were going in and out? So let's see, should we try that is correct, to make yes. a new connection? And she connection? pointed out that the um, the uh, a concentration of a... She pointed out that the... Con I think we should... Uh, okay, everybody, we uh, our guest is calling us from... Japan. Japan. I'm not, we're in Japan. I'm not sure. Okay, I, anyway, I know Japan. it's not Tokyo. <laughs> Japan I think is we need Japan, and it's far away, and we're having some connection problems, so... We're going to see. We should try the phone number and see uh, if that is, isn't Okay, better. you're going to go to the phone number? Okay, great. So we'll just talk. For yeah, a few so anyway, this I'll, I'll just sort of pick up a little bit. So Christine Todd Whitman, uh, she gives, she lies and gives out this, this false information about the air being clean and how, you know. And then later on, when she's confronted about it, she Don't goes... just say anything. It's astounding. Oh, it's unbelievable. Well, and then, yeah, but even then, when she's confronted about it later, she goes, well, that was, uh, that was the best information that was provided to me at the time. And, you know, uh, yeah. research has, has progressed since then. As if, as if, you know, new information had been provided after right. uh, she had said what she said. So are you there now, James? I believe I am. Oh, that's good. much better. Okay, that's better. So, okay, so you were talking about this, this super fun site with asbestos. So how does that connect to the EPA covering up uh, the 9-11 stuff? So uh, Dr. Jenkins' point in that was to say that the uh, Libby, Montana site was declared a Superfund site, and, and uh, which meant that all of these funds would be committed to the cleanup of the residents in the area, etc. Right. Uh, despite the fact that the Libby, Montana site had concentrations of asbestos that were 22 times less than the concentration found in residential uh, apartments and, and other places in lower Manhattan. So... If you were going to declare Libby, Montana, a, a Superfund site, oh an, an emergency, and it would have to be cleaned up, why not do that in Manhattan? Well, right. obviously, because it would be orders of magnitude, much more money that would need to be spent. And uh, that, uh, and obviously, it would also cause panic and, and uh, further hinder uh, the solution to 9-11, which was given to us in the wake of 9-11 by the Bush administration, which was, of course, to continue shopping and continue business as usual. 
Well, also, well, I mean, if it became a super fun site and you had to clean it up, you might have to clean up other things that uh, you wouldn't want to convey to the public existed in the uh, debris, as in, in the remaining debris also, right? I mean, well, certainly, I think, yeah, if we look at some of the other whistleblowers, including Kevin Ryan, talking about some of the other materials that are in that dust that would indicate evidence of an explosive event, for example, in the World Trade Center, that would be something they wouldn't want. But of course, there were many toxic materials that were contained in that dust, asbestos just being one example of that. Right. So, okay, so they should have declared it a Superfund site based on other uh, sites that they declared Superfund sites that were much less toxic. So, okay, so she blew the whistle, Kate Jen- Jenkins blew the whistle on that. Did Were there any repercussions for that, for her? There so certainly were, and uh, they were not long in coming. In fact, not only did she write that 134-page letter, which she addressed to then-Senator Hillary Clinton, as Uh. well as Congressman uh, Gerald Nadler and Carolyn Maloney, but she also, in 2000, I I believe in 2008, or uh, shortly thereafter, she penned a letter, a memo to the FBI, uh, trying to get a criminal investigation launched uh, based on her knowledge of this cover-up. Obviously, the EPA was not too happy about that, and coincidentally, in 2010, uh, she was indeed fired from her position, but it was based on, so uh, so the EPA said, it was based on a workplace incident that stemmed from this silly back and forth that went on about a, there was uh, someone who came in to clean her office that she was complaining it was wearing too strong of a perfume or something. And, oh and they interpreted her reaction as a threat, which oh as a God. physical threat against her supervisor. She's this tiny uh, five-foot-something woman against the six-foot-something supervisor. They interpreted it as a physical threat and fired her for it. Uh, the long story short is that after eight years of legal battle, eight years of appeals, the final, final verdict finally came down last year that the EPA had improperly terminated her, that it was retaliation for her whistleblowing, that she, in fact, the EPA had uh, deliberately uh, destroyed a number of documents that they had been ordered to keep pertaining to her case, internal memos and, and communications. And so they ruled in her favor, and she has been restored to her position. To the best of my knowledge, she is still working for the EPA. Did the FBI ever follow up? Did the FBI follow up on her letter? Uh, not, not to my knowledge, no. As far as I know, that FBI uh, letter went into a black hole and was never, uh, did not result in a criminal investigation. So now talk about Barry Jennings. He's, inter- he's no longer with us, right? He died, but um, his story is extremely interesting. I mean, talking about the explosives evidence, it's his, uh, his story is very interesting. Right. Well, it seems that he died, which is another interesting part of this tale, what? a strange addendum to the tale. But, well, um, but to set the table, Barry Jennings uh, was the deputy director of emergency services for the New York City Housing Authority on 9-11. And so that morning, he was called into World Trade Center Building 7, which was where the Office of Emergency Management had been placed by the uh, Giuliani administration, uh, mayor of New York, of course, at that time, uh, uh, several years earlier, amidst, amidst much controversy. It was a very controversial decision to place the Office of Emergency Management in World Trade Center Building 7 directly across from the Twin Towers that had been targeted for terrorist activity in 1993. 
So that that was a whole other thing. Um, but on the morning of 9-11, Barry Jennings was called to the Office of Emergency Management. He arrived. He went up the elevator with someone that he did not know at that time, but later turned out to be Corporation Counsel Michael Hess. And the two of them ended up stumbling out into the Office of Emergency Management, which was completely abandoned. Now, according to Barry Jennings' timeline, they entered the building shortly after the first plane hit the North Tower at 846. Uh, And so it was around 9 a.m.-ish that they arrived at the Office of Emergency Management. The entire floor was completely abandoned. They said there was smoking cups of coffee, steaming cups of coffee. There was half-eaten sandwiches. The place had been abandoned in a hurry. Uh, after trying to ascertain what was going on, calling their supervisors, Barry got a hold of someone who said, are you actually in the building? Get out of there now. Uh, at which Whoa. point Michael Hess said, uh, if elevators aren't working, I found a stairwell, let's go. And they started running down the stairwell. And at that point, according to Barry Jennings' testimony, there was an explosion somewhere down below them, down from the lobby area. They got to the, I believe, the sixth floor of the building uh, stairwell before they were blown back up by a, uh, an explosion that took place below them. And the sixth floor was, uh, at least the stairwell, was uh, pretty much Obliterated. destroyed. Yeah. Obliterated. Uh, he said he had, they had to pull themselves up to the eighth floor, where getting their bearings, according again, according to Barry Jennings, he could see that one side of the building, Building 7, was essentially was not there. He said, you look one, one way, there's the building. You look the other way, it's not there. And he said he could see the Twin Towers. Uh, he did make a point of that, that they were wow. both still standing. Oh, and, interesting. Uh, what? What? Wait a second. This explosion in half the building of seven is blown away while the Twin twat Towers are still up? Is that what you is just the said? the story that Barry Jennings told, yes. And that, of course, for anyone who doesn't understand, that, of course, goes against the narrative yes. of the day, which is that all the damage that took place in World Trade Center Building 7 was a result of the collapse of the Twin yeah. Towers. And it was the debris raining down on World Trade Center Building 7 that caused the fires that eventually resulted in the destruction of the building at 5.20 p.m. that afternoon, which still a large number of people don't even know about. But yes, there were three buildings that completely collapsed that day. World Trade Center Building 7 was the third. Right. So this is extremely important. And again, we are going based on Barry Jennings' testimony here. And he did make a point of stating this quite clearly. But it was not for several years, actually, after the incident that he was finally tracked down based on a TV clip of just a short interview he had given on that day which found its way into the hands of Dylan Avery and Jason Burmis, documentary filmmakers who, of course, were behind the Loose the Change loose documentary, change, yeah. which was the first really viral internet documentary phenomenon back in the early 2000s. They found uh, this clip, and they tracked Barry Jennings down, asked him for an interview. He was happy to grant it to them. He said he intimated to them he did know their work, so he was not unaware of what what it was they were doing and they were at that time preparing i believe for the uh the the, the final cut or uh, the third edition or something like that of loose change so they they did take him uh they, they went with him in a van he drove them to an area where they could get a, a shot on top of the building where they had a 20 minute sit down interview with him and it was extremely 
thorough. They they definitely went over the timeline. They 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 pressed him on it. Are you sure? Were the twin towers still standing? How did you know? He told the story a couple of times about the firefighters that came to rescue him and Hess, who were still trapped, obviously up there on the eighth floor. They had broken out of one of the windows. They were screaming, calling for help, and the some firefighters had responded. Um, they said he was going to, uh, Barry Jennings said he was going to try to take the fire hose and slide down it, down from the eighth floor, down to the, the street. And the firefighters said, don't do it. That will not hold you. Uh, don't worry, we're coming for you. And then uh, there was panic, confusion, uh, dust, and the firefighters ran away. And then a little while later, they came back and the same scene played out. And, oh, don't worry, we're coming to get you. And then panic, confusion, Something happened. They, they all they, run away. And the firefighters kept leaving because building one went down, they went away. Building two went down, they went away. Is that correct? That's exactly what Barry Jennings said. Wow. And he okay. stressed that point. Whoa, they that's went away so when the first building collapsed, and then they came back, and they went away when the second tower collapsed. It was the collapses that they were responding to. So Meanwhile, half the other half of building seven is already gone. According to his testimony. So again, I keep I keep going back to this because it is certainly possible in the confusion of the day that perhaps I mean maybe he had the timeline wrong, maybe there was something different going on than what he understood or could see from his window, uh, but that is exactly that's the insistent. But the key point. thing, very insistent. The key thing though is him talking about the explosions from below. And his talking about the lobby having been, he walked into a perfectly clean lobby. I mean, everything was intact. And then he left out of a hole in the wall from that lobby, and the lobby was obliterated. Obliterated. Right? Exactly right. In fact, he said it looked like King Kong had stepped through there, and he said that he couldn't even tell it was the lobby. He had to ask a firefighter, where are we? He said, this is the lobby. He couldn't believe this that that was now. The let's that he had come let's in. also Same. let's also remember that NIST, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, you know that's the government's uh, uh, government uh, office that was looking into what caused these buildings to be destroyed. Uh, they actually at one point they basically came out and said it, they were destroyed due to ordinary office fires. And something called thermal expansion, meaning these fires burning slowly, slowly, slowly were, you know, wearing down the building or something, and then it collapsed, which, I mean, it, it just, even to somebody who doesn't know anything about much, I, I mean, that just makes no sense at all that a steel structure, little office, office fires would, would, you know, bring down a steel structure. And also, it doesn't account for the explosions and the complete obliteration of, of of the lobby. But they came out with that, and and then and then they moved the target. And, and when somebody says, "Oh, that that is absurd," then they moved the target. They moved the explanation. And the second, and I've seen this, I've seen this before. We've all seen this movie before. And the next explanation was. Uh, the it was because of a boiler that exploded, right? And <laughs> and unfortunately for them, Jennings was a a boiler, an old boiler guy, right? He he had uh, worked on boilers. He was familiar with boilers, and he was like, "There's no way that it would have been a just a boiler." Can I pull us back into um, un unifying theories? 
James, do you have one? Do you have a theory of 9-11? Who did it? Why? Who done it? How? Uh, or do you focus on, I mean, this is just, we. The, the official narrative is so shattered. And by the way, that clip is one of the most extraordinary things yeah, I've brilliant. ever heard. It's and brilliant. it's so funny. And you find yourself, I felt, we, I was just laughing. And I thought, oh my God, I'm laughing at 9-11. But it's, it's masterful. So, do you or do you stay, yeah, do you have a theory of uh, what happened on 9-11? I certainly have my ideas based on the research that I've done over the years of various things that line up better than the, the official story. But I wouldn't claim to have the, the unifying theory, the details of who did what in, on what day and how it all went down because, precisely because all of the relevant information has been so thoroughly covered up and suppressed that, yes, we can make informed uh, speculation, essentially, from our our real well, side. Well, let's break it down it a little. Do you have a theory about who most people seem to believe? Okay, funding. Saudi Arabia? What? Uh, yes, certainly there was. There I think they're part, trail, part so. of something. You know, they might be part of something. Well, I, okay, that's I'm not being very... Okay, let, let, okay, James, you tell us who you... She's giving me Celia's giving me the hairy eyeball. I don't know if I don't know if Saudi Arabia is the first country that comes to mind. Well, to be perfectly honest, you know, we but all let's have our James. different pot where we swim around and get our information. Where I've been, that's the that's okay. obvious. That Saudi okay, her Arabia. pond is and the Saudi Arabia is, pond. I, there certainly is a money trail that leads back to uh, Saudi Arabia, especially the the royal family, including, of course, uh, Prince uh, Bandar Bush and his uh, connections to funding. Some of the alleged hijackers, and I always say alleged because there's a lot to say about that side of the story as well, yeah, but yeah. Um, funding, uh, including the ones that were allowed into the country despite being on terrorist watch lists, despite being CIA under CIA purview, um, living with an FBI informant in Los Angeles. I mean, the story gets crazier and crazier. But when it comes to the unifying theory, uh, my take on this and any other major deep state event that is world changing in its implications, like a JFK assassination, like a 9-11, is that these types of things generally, I think, do not happen because they benefit one particular player mm, in one indeed. particular way. No, mm. it's a convergence of many different players who have reason to be involved in a plot like this, which yeah. is, I think sort of spreads out the responsibility so that you may be able to pull a smoking gun here and say, it's look, it's all Saudi Arabia. But of course, that finger pointed out at Saudi Arabia will have, you know. I, I didn't mean to imply you know that at all. I just the, the reason the why the Saudi Arabia alone doesn't make any sense to me is, I mean, it, it, no, if you talk Saudi about Saudi Arabia wait, alone for nine eleven, just for, well, I was just talking about the funding. Okay, part. no, no, but yeah. but even the funding, because if you if you look at uh, the the next whistleblower on the list that I wanted you to talk about, that guy Michael Springman. If you look at his experience, you've got to say that, um, you know, there's some CIA fingerprints in this story somewhere. Well, of course. Oh, absolutely. So yes. could I mean, you like, talk there's, about there's him? There's intelligence and agency fingerprints, um, not just CIA, but certainly CIA. And uh, that does directly impinge on Michael Springman's case. But before we get to that, I, I should say that I think the money trail question is exceptionally a vitally important question oh, when it yes. comes to 9-11. And it's why I did a uh, documentary a few years ago called 9-11 Trillions, 
um, which you can find corporatereport.com slash 911 trillions. It's up there for free, like all my work. And uh, I do explore that issue of the funding and the money side of it from many different perspectives, because like any criminal investigation, the first thing a good criminal investigator will do Follow the money, exactly. Follow the money. So where did the money come from for 9-11? Where did the money go for 9-11? What does it have to do with Donald Rumsfeld's announcement of a new war on September 10th, 2001, against the Pentagon's own bureaucracy? Because, we, oh, whoops, we're missing $2.3 trillion. Uh, I mean, it, the story is crazy from a number of levels, one of which is provided by the Michael Springman case, um, as you mentioned, who was working in the Jeddah Consulate of the, uh, the U.S. consulate in Jeddah, I should say, as a consular officer approving visas for people wanting to travel to the United States. And Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, I should say he was doing this in the late 1980s. I believe he arrived in 1987, and I believe he was gone by 1989, I want to say. I, don't, I may be off by a year or two, but at any rate, he was in the late 1980s working there at the U.S. consulate in Jeddah, where, according to his his story, and it's a, it's a voluminous story, there's lots of twists and turns, but the long story short is that he was essentially, um, he was approving visas for terrorists. He was being forced uh, he, forced to approve uh, visas for terrorists, right? I mean, he would say, he would say it, no, and they fact, say, you want yes, to keep your fact, job? Was, right. There was a lot of pressure. Uh, in fact, he was rejecting a number of visas that were then being overturned by higher-ups in the, the who, of course, were CIA, as most of the people. As oh, no, our sound issue is back. Hold on. Could you repeat what you just said? Uh, I don't know if you're repeating what you just said, but... Um, uh, he, uh, uh, yes, uh, Michael Springman, uh, part of his story is that uh, he, he was approving visas. Uh, he, uh, sorry, he was denying visas to suspect uh, visa applicant that was then being overturned by his superiors who he discovered were working with the CIA and NSA and other intelligence agencies. And that is an exceptionally important part of the story because who was who were they approving visas for? It was essentially the Afghan, uh, the, the Arab Afghans, as they were called at that time, the, the golden boys in Afghanistan. Under Osama bin Obama Laden, Obama. right? Who were under... Exactly right. Who, who at the time was working with the CIA, who was lauded in the international press, including by Robert Fisk, who I believe in 1993 even wrote a glowing edit, uh, journal uh, article, I believe in The Independent, about uh, this warrior for peace who's now uh, setting the, uh, the, the Middle East on the path to uh, reconciliation or something like this. I mean, it was obviously a very different narrative for a very different time, but essentially Al-Qaeda, or at least the seed of what became known as Al-Qaeda, was being shipped into the United States for training at that time. And it was largely through the Jeddah Consulate, or at least one part of it was through the Jeddah Consulate, and Michael Springman had a direct part in that story, which he blew the whistle on. This is important for 9-11, not only because it obviously Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda being shipped to the U.S. Uh, for training, but more importantly, Jeddah just happens to be the consulate at which 15 of the 19 alleged 9-11 hijackers received their visa to enter the United States. Wow. This is beyond coincidence that almost every single one of the people on that list, at any rate, did receive their their visa from that 
particular office. And one one consular officer, Shana Steiner, right? She is issued twelve of the fourteen, and boy, she's never come forward. No, she has been. Uh, talked to, at any rate, by Michael Springman, who, in the course of researching his book called Visas for Al-Qaeda, he did uh, track down and he did talk to Shana Steinger and tried to get information out uh, from her about what happened and you know, how do you, what do you think was going on, but she was not very forthcoming with him at the time and basically left him with uh, no further answers. But there are a few documents in the 9-11 uh, archives that uh, that do talk about this story. Um, if you look into the tra- uh, travel and visa monograph of the 9-11 Commission, uh, there are documents appended to that that include a interview with a consular officer. Obviously, the name is blocked out, but it is clearly Shana Steinger, and it is talking about her experience and the, the visas that were issued. So this has been addressed in the deep, 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 deep levels of the archives of the 9-11 Commission, etc., but of course never made its way into the 9-11 Commission report or the official narrative in any substantial sense. This is a footnote of a footnote that, oh, by the way, yeah, one consular officer approved 12, uh, uh, or was it 14? There's different ways of counting because she, she issued multiple visas to some of these applicants. It's a very confusing story when you get into those weeds. But uh, at any rate, well, it, it says it, she it gave the visas great. on false info or incomplete uh, applications, uh, even though they gave false information and on incomplete applications. So the whole thing is, is that obviously something smelled there. But and I need to ask a question about the, the hijackers, James. Um, this uh, one hears often um, that the hijackers or some of them were found still alive after 9-11. What's your take on that? Yes, it's one of those claims that sounds so outlandish that it could not possibly be true. And it's the kind of thing that most people would roll their eyes at. And you'd think, oh, it's just in the confusion of the the few weeks after 9-11. Obviously, there was a lot of conflicting information and some people just got confused. But the more you look into it, the more there is something important and substantial there that was firmly and and, uh, seemingly for all time just swept aside in late September. So the the exact timeline uh, involves, I believe, on September 14th, the FBI issued its first uh, memo, essentially, uh, that, that made it into pretty much every broadcast around the world, that these are the 19 men that we believe were the hijackers. And over the course of the next two weeks, there were a number of articles being coming out everywhere, BBC, Independent, ABC News, everywhere that you could think of, reputable sources, quote-unquote, um, that were all digging up information about, well, this person that they've named has turned up in, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, and he claims, uh, well, I'm a pilot, but, uh, and my passport was stolen in the 1990s, but I, I'm obviously alive, and here I am. Yeah, Walid uh, al-Shari from, from Morocco protested the use of his name and photo as a hijacker, and the FBI had to apologize to another one of them because he wasn't, I forget the name of the other guy. Abdul Rahman. Yeah. Al Omari. Yes. In fact, there were several different instances of that. And uh, and again, some of them had slightly different names or a different middle name or, or these types of things. So you might think it was simply a case of mistaken identity, except, of course, there were other interesting reports going around at that time, including one by Newsweek that reported that five of those uh, people on that list had actually trained at 
secure U.S. military installations in the 1990s. They had sources at some of those installations talking about the, some of the, the people on that list. Uh, it was a major story for a week or so until the DOD, uh, I believe it was the DOD. Um, I, I think I have a recollection of Condoleezza Rice at some point addressing this. But at any rate, at some point, there was the official U.S. government word that, don't worry, we checked into that. And although some of the names and details were the same as the, the people on that hijacker list, don't worry, we checked into it and it's different people. And that was the end of it. And that was the extent to my knowledge, of any information that was given out well, at that time. Well, Mr. Mueller, you know, Mr. Mueller, who just recently ran Russiagate, he was he was forced to admit that the FBI wasn't certain that some of the hijackers were actually hijackers. Yeah. He actually came out. Yeah, and, so right. I, He did I, come out and say that right before the FBI issued its final list of hijackers that included pictures, and that, that to this day, is the official list. Right, it's, still... It's extremely strange because there are multiple pictures of some of these alleged hijackers that clearly, clearly are different people. <laughs> they are not the same person. So one of these is not wow. the right person. Where did this photo come from? Who is this? I think this is an important issue because at the very least, it certainly raises a specter of at least uh, uh, identity theft of some sort. I mean, there are some people who claim that my, my passport was stolen in the 90s, but uh, I'm still alive. It, it's very possible that some of these uh, names, aliases, uh, could be stolen identity, something along those lines. But that was swept under the rug so quickly that one wonders well, where that investigation we've, ultimately ended you up. You know, unfortunately, like, the time is going by, and, and there's something that I really, really want to get to, which is, you know... F- I just want to start this off, and then I want you to pick this up. Let's talk about following the money. Let's talk about the fact, first of all, it seemed like when you see what happened with the first uh, Trade Center uh, bombing, the first one, uh, again, the FBI uh, has some guy inside working. You know, they they have their informant. And they pull, and at some point they pull the guy out. The guy is completely freaked out because he says they're going to blow up the the thing, and then they blow it up. Okay, next thing you know, on this one, the FBI, the CIA, CIA is forcing people to get visas. FBI, Cindy Sheehan, she's saying that they're shutting down uh, information. I mean, there's. I think you're calling rally. Bandar Bush, you know, the, and and you know, Bandar Bush is in the mix. Uh, then, then you know, George Bush, when the whole thing happens, says, hey, you know, he tries to, like, not have an investigation. Then he tries to put, you know, Kissinger in there. So let's paint – and you know more about all this than I do, obviously. Paint the whole picture in terms of the interested uh, parties and, and the money portion, if you can. Just try and pull it all together. Yeah, well, uh, I think a good window into that is the formation of the 9-11 Commission, which is one part of this whistleblower story, because it will come as a potential shock to a lot of the people out there, uh, certainly a lot of the general public, American public, that, in fact, the some of the most uh, notable 9-11 whistleblowers are the 9-11 commissioners themselves. Right. Uh, oh, wow, I fact, never knew several, that. Yes, it is. Uh, it, again, this is so unbelievable that... You, it, the mind boggles, but six out of the 10 9-11 commissioners have publicly expressed concern that the commission was misled, stymied, hampered by conflicts of interest, and, of course, in the famous words of co-chairs Kane and Hamilton, 
set up to fail. Well, forced, um, and they said they were forced to participate in a co- cover-up. They and they they are Tom Keene, Lee Hamilton, Bob Carey, John Lehman, and John Romer, right? Uh, Tim Romer and Max Cleland. Oh, and Max Cleland. I'm and sorry. I hope they don't take any heli- and, helicopters. Anytime, and so. interestingly, Bob Carey said in 2009 that 9-11 was a 30-year-old conspiracy. What, what was he talking about? That's an excellent question and one that you would think that any reporter looking to, to make their name would trip over themselves to ask, oh, here is a 9-11 commissioner saying that 9-11 is a 30-year conspiracy. What does he mean? Well, let's ask a follow-up. But, of course, that has never happened. That particular statement comes from a clip, which you can watch online, that was put, uh, it was a question that was put to Bob Kerry after a speech that he made in, I believe, Los Angeles back in 2009. And it was, of course, by an independent media uh, uh, personality who asked the question uh, about supporting a criminal investigation into 9-11, and they had a back and forth, at which some point he says, uh, the problem is it's a 30-year-old conspiracy. And the the independent media reporter says, no, I'm talking about 9-11. And Kerry says, that's what I'm talking about, and then walks away. Um, Again, what does he mean by that? Now, there are various conclusion or various ideas that we could come up with. For example, in 2009, 30 years would be 1979. So it is possible that he's talking about Operation Cyclone to get the United States uh, involved in Afghanistan to draw in the Soviets, which eventually led to the creation of Al-Qaeda, etc. Maybe he's talking about that narrative. But again, how do we know until someone asks him? Right. This does not seem like rocket science, but the fact that no one will go near this story with a 10-foot pole is probably a sign that there's something there. Well, I, but it, I think the thing that troubles me the most is that, you know, people say Saudi Arabia, okay, fine. But it also seems to me like our own, you know, our own agencies had to have been involved in this, from the Pentagon to the CIA, State Department, et cetera, had to be involved in this for it to happen. It's such a huge operation. So many things had to right, happen. But those two things are not in conflict. Well, no, no, I'm yeah, not saying yeah, they are right, in conflict. Right. I'm just trying to get, as you said, I'm trying to get James to give us a window into what he might right. think, into what his as close to unified theory as he can possibly get. You know what he thinks actually happened, Saudi and who, is who, our did, ally. who did what? Right. Well, let let's put it this way. Uh, last year on the nine eleven anniversary, I released a documentary called Nine Eleven War Games, which goes into as much detail as I possibly could within a one hour documentary about the war games that were being held on nine eleven, and that directly affected the the air response that that day, and the fact that it is inescapable after watching that that elements within the uh, the Department of Defense generally and certainly within NORAD had to have been involved in the suppression of the response that morning that allowed those planes to be yes. wildly off course yes. for a very long time without any interception. It, it, it was allowed to happen, and we can see that from a number of different angles, one of which is the, the war game angle, which I would suggest people check into. But you're right. I mean, there's when it, whether it comes to the CIA and their various fingerprints on various operations, the FBI stifling, uh, actually stifling ongoing investigations that were yep. happening at that time, including into Zacharias Moussaoui and others, uh, when, when it comes to the, the DOD and the fact that uh, the 9-11 Commission 
was even considering pressing criminal charges against members of the Pentagon who they knew had lied, deliberately lied about the timeline that morning and uh, their response. Uh, but they did not press those charges, unfortunately. But uh, again, it's, it's uh, any way that you look at it, there is no way that A, the official story is the actual story, or B, that elements within the government, uh, certainly, and without, outside of the government as well, uh, must have known about, uh, facilitated, and actively covered up what took place that day. There is, I mean, it's inescapable when you come to it from a number of different angles, like the money trail, like the air response. So the money trail, like the, let's, let's talk about the money trail for a minute. So the money trail is, first of all, the uh, 3.2, did you say $3.2 trillion that the Pentagon lost, all those records were gone, boom, okay, uh, right? So they say. Okay, so well, they say. I mean, it's a much, it's a, that's a much bigger story that goes back to the late 1990s, uh, well, no, I'm just saying. Of- I, I'm just saying that it's interesting the timing of his. Uh, I, I'm sure there is a bigger story, but announcing this and and talking and literally saying, "I we're declaring a war on bureaucracy" and all of this and is saying, which is an interesting pull quote from my uh, 9/11 uh, trillions documentary. One might ask, how can the Dep- uh, the defense secretary attack the Pentagon in front of uh, the American public? Something along those lines. Uh, just stunning statements that came from that speech delivered on September 10th, 2001, uh, which obviously, how could that possibly? I mean, usually they bury a story on Friday afternoon, not on Monday morning. You know, how are they right. going to get out of this one? Oh, 9-11, that's how. Well, and, so, uh, so we, when you followed the money, what were the key things that you found? Uh, there were a, a, a few different aspects that I approached it from. One is the 9-11 heist, which has to do with the destruction of the Twin Towers, the insurance, the Silverstein story that people probably have heard in some iteration before, right. but also about some of the remarkable information that's come out about, or that, that started to come out about what was found on the hard drives of some of the financial institutions that were trading in the World Trade Center, up to and including 9-11, and uh, some of the information that indicates that enormous amounts of money were being traded during the attacks. And that, in, that evidence was destroyed in the destruction of the towers, except for a company called Convar, which was working on recovering those hard drives and starting to get some of the uh, information out of them. Um, but then that, was, that investigation was taken over by the FBI and promptly covered up, never heard of again. Um, which was one of the fascinating aspects. Of it. So Another the FBI is definitely a major participant in this in this 9-11 event. There's no way around it. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Fingerprints all over. Uh, 9-11 insider trading, which again is a story that was, it was largely reported in those weeks following 9-11, that there was massive amounts of money that was being put in put options Famously on the airlines, but uh, less famously, there were a, a number of uh, uh, companies that were involved in those attacks that were directly uh, impacted by those attacks. That were that were, there was an unusual increase in put options, and that's not a that's not a subjective statement. That has been reviewed by, I believe, I want to say three separate scholarly research papers over the past decade have concluded there is no doubt this there was some sort of foreknowledge of attacks that were being traded on. But, um, but the, I guess my big question is, when you follow the money, when you follow the forensic evidence, um, whose fingerprints are, ag- I mean, 
are actually on the carrying out of this of of this event. I mean, do you really think that these hijackers uh, who couldn't fly planes actually did that? I mean, I, I'm trying. And I know to- there are factions in the 9/11 Truth Movement who uh, think that the there were no planes that hit the. Well, building. I I'm, I just want I just want his assessment. Got, yeah, okay, sorry. We, yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I just want quickly because we're running out of time. Your assessment, given what you know about the forensic evidence, given what you know about the circumstances, uh, you know the timeline, given what you know about the actual thing carried out, and given what you know about the the alleged hijackers, who do you think actually physically carried this out? You mean in the planes, Christine? Uh, yeah, in okay. the planes. Of, you because know, we already addressed Who directed already- this thing? Who directed this thing? Uh, a lot of the the a lot of the signs point back to Dick Cheney's office as being an extremely important office, and the allegation has been made that he was running P-Tech software in the emergency bunker underneath underneath the White House on 9/11. And most people will have no idea what P-Tech is. But I did address that in my 9-11 Trillions documentary for people who want to delve into it, essentially software that would have been able to have uh, affected and coordinated the response or lack thereof on that day, um, which is uh, just another entire rabbit hole in and of itself. My God. Uh, There's no doubt. There's no doubt that elements within the government and within the intelligence agencies, both in the United States and in Israel and in Saudi Arabia and in uh, other countries, presumably, but certainly those, those ones are the big would have three. been implicated yeah. in, absolutely so, in the plot. That's what I so, keep hearing, Israel, a U.S. So Saudi if Arabia. you were going to extraordinarily render um, a terrorist... By the way, you for, guys, for, we have two minutes. If you, if in your, your, uh, if you could extraordinary, have the power to extraordinarily render any of the, quote, terrorists involved in 9-11, who would you extraordinarily render, James? <laughs> this is probably not the way I would want to put this question, but someone who should absolutely be questioned for the the, the part that they played in the, the events of 9-11, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, would be a place to start. I think that's where yeah. we could get off. It's interesting how Donald Rumsfeld is never field. seen or heard He's anywhere. I keep thinking about that. And Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell. Have you, have you thought about that, James? They're just gone, those guys. They're not in the public sphere. Well, and uh, only when uh, only when needed. But uh, I'm sure Darth Cheney will be getting his 15th uh, heart transplant soon, and will become a new man, right? Let's tell our listeners real quick uh, where can they find you and your great work. Give us your website: CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. All my work is there for free. Oh, please, James, you have to come back again because we were going to talk about propaganda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were great. Thank you so much. It was great having Thank you. you. Anytime. Thank you, okay, James. Okay, bye.